The Black Room, your fortnightly podcast where our journalists and editors unpack the stories and issues from the latest edition of the Courier-Mail newspaper. Deadly. Jingi Walla, welcome to episode eight of the Black Room News Podcast. I'm Nick Payton, and in this episode, we'll be talking about the current climate crisis unfolding all over the world. I'll be speaking with our senior journalist, Darren Coyne, about one group of traditional owners from the Torres Strait Islands who are suing the Australian government, and another separate group of Torres Strait Islands traditional owners who have made a complaint against the Australian government with the United Nations Human Rights Committee, plus an overview of the COP26 Climate Change Summit currently being held in Scotland. I'll also be speaking with Amelia Telford, who is the National Director at the Seed Indigenous Youth Climate Network, about why Seed have raised more than $20,000 to send a delegate over to the COP26 Summit in Glasgow, And I'll be wrapping up the episode with a yarn with our sports editor, Darren Moncrief, about the implications climate change will have on sport. But first, I'd like to acknowledge the Widjibal Wyabal people of the Bundjalung Nation, where this podcast is being recorded today. I also acknowledge and pay my respects to all ancestors and elders. Now, in the latest edition of the Mail newspaper, 763, which is on sale now, this edition really focuses on the dire situation for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities who are witnessing a crisis in the face of an ongoing climate emergency. With me now is our senior journalist, Darren Coyne. So, Darren, you've covered a lot in this edition about the climate emergency unfolding all around the world. Uh, And it's no secret that climate change is the greatest risk facing all of us. And, you know, we can see it around the world through the storms, the floods, wildfires are intensifying, air pollution is affecting the health of tens of millions of people. And, you know, this unpredictable weather causes massive damage to homes and livelihoods. That's right, Nick. It's been almost three decades that the UN's been bringing together almost every country on Earth for these global climate summits, and they call them COPs. That Mm. stands for uh, Conference of the Parties. And in that time, climate change has gone from being a fringe issue to a global priority. Um, This year, it's uh, the 26th annual summit. It's been given the name COP26, and with the UK as president, COP26 has been taking place in Glasgow. Yeah, because we, I remember the, the Paris Agreement. Now, this came around in about 2015. Now, most experts um, believe that this um, COP26 in particular um, has particular urgency, and that reason relates to the Paris Agreement. So if we go back a couple of years, as we know what happened, uh, every country came together back then, and they agreed to work together to limit global warming to well below two degrees aiming for about 1.5 degrees. Um, And that's all to do with adapting with the impacts of a changing climate and to make, you know, make money available to deliver these changes. So that's kind of where the Paris Agreement was born, isn't it? That's right. And uh, and that commitment to aim for 1.5 degrees, it's it's important because every fraction of a degree of warming results in the tragedy of many more lives lost and uh, livelihoods damaged. Yep. Under the Paris Agreement, countries committed to bring forward national plans setting out how much they'd reduce their emissions. They want to be known as Nationally Determined Contributions, or NDCs. Yep. And they agreed that every five years, they'd come back with an updated plan 
that would reflect their highest possible ambition at that time. So this is now um, COP26. They've come back to the table. Um, and hopefully, you know, uh, at the end of this process, the summit over there in Glasgow, hopefully we're going to see some of these real outcomes happening. Um, and I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't long ago that we had our own prime minister, Scott Morrison, who carried in a piece of coal into federal parliament, declaring that people needn't be scared of coal. Um, but you can see that the government have since changed their tune, um, in their stance of the, the climate in that they've kind of turned around and gone, well, uh, you know, hold on, you know, maybe there is something in this and, you know, Australia is going to the COP26 summit in Glasgow, but, you know, Darren, for communities like those in the Torres Strait and the islands of the Torres Strait, don't they have every right to be worried about these implications of burning coal? I mean, you know, lots of communities up there on the Torres Strait are watching helplessly as their islands begin to go underwater. And we know that this is thanks to man-made climate change. And it means that, you know, sea levels are rising so rapidly um, that the communities up there on the Torres Strait, they don't know what to do. That's right, Nick. The communities up there in the Torres Strait, they've they've been witnessing these dramatic changes in the climate for, for decades now. And and they've been asking the government for help, but they've just been met with very little response. Yep. And so they've pretty much been forced to take matters into their own hands. And uh, up there, communities are building their own retaining walls and concrete barriers. They're just trying to stop that constant sl- flow of seawater, mm. but it's just not enough. Yeah. So, uh, well, they're just fed up with the excuses from the government and uh, the Boigu and uh, Sabai uh, Island people in the Torres Strait, they're actually suing the Australian government now. Now, Darren, this is huge. So I expected to have seen this splashed on one of our mainstream papers. It wasn't. Uh, so there's a group of people involved in a class action taking the Australian government to court. This is a huge issue. Can you tell us a little bit about this landmark case? Sure. The two claimants. So it's... Uh, fellows by the name of Paul Kabai and uh, Pabai Pabai. They're, they're seeking federal court order requiring the government to actively take steps to prevent harm by cutting greenhouse gas emissions. Yep. Now, the traditional owners from uh, those low-lying islands, they're leading this class action. They're, they're alleging the government has breached their duty of care over na- under native title and the Torres Strait treaties. Tell us a little bit more of that. What what have the fellas said? What are the breaches that they believe the government are making? Okay, well, they're, they're arguing that the federal government's responsibility to ensure that islander people are not harmed by the climate crisis is just not being met. This is the first climate class action brought by First Nations people in Australia. And uh, if successful, it, the case has the potential to not only protect their islands and other communities, but also to help avert the climate crisis before it devastates communities across Australia. Because it's not just the the islands that climate change are going to affect. I mean, if we're talking about sea level rises, that's, you know, most of the east coast of Australia. So, you know, there's a lot at stake here. Um, in terms of the particular situation for the fellas on Boigo and Sabai, they've let us know a little bit about what's been happening on the ground. What What's going on on the islands that is deeming this to be such a crisis for the fellas and their families and communities? Well, Boigo and Sabai, they're very flat and low-lying islands and they're about um, one and a half metres above sea level. Which That's not much. It's not much. Not it's, much at all. It's about as tall as you, Nick. Yeah. <laughs> and they're uh, particularly exposed to those sea level rises, more so than any of the other islands mm. uh, in the Torres Strait. And those islands, are, they're already being regularly flooded by seawater, and this is affecting their settlements, infrastructure, cultural sites. Um, 
their vegetable patches are getting going under and uh, even um, the burial sites up there. And that's, that's traumatic. Now, Darren, this claim relates uh, very closely to another class action claim, uh, the 2015 Uganda Foundation Dutch claim. This claim is modelled on that successful claim. So can you tell us a little bit about the Uganda Foundation claim and how that relates to uh, Boigo and Sabai Islands and their uh, wanting to sue the government? Well, this landmark case is modelled on one of the most successful climate cases in history, and that's the uh, in 2015, the environmental group, the Uganda Foundation, supported 886 Dutch people to bring a case against their government, arguing that it had a legal responsibility to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to protect them from climate change. And then on June 24th, 2015, the District Court of The Hague ruled in favour of Uganda and ordered the government to cut its greenhouse gas emissions by at least 25% by the end of 2020 compared to the 1990 levels. And the government appealed, but in December 2019, the Dutch Supreme Court found in favour of Uganda and confirmed the original court order. And that led to the rapid closure of coal-fired power stations and billions of euros in investment in renewable energy and energy efficiency. So it's interesting there that the court order made them reduce their emissions by shutting down coal-powered stations, you know? And then that, you know, has really helped the situation for those fellas mm. over there. Meanwhile, in our country, they're, they're trying to open up more power stations. That's so, right. Uh, and more coal fields. So it's... Um, I mean, you can understand why Paul and Pabai are bringing this action to require the Australian government to uh, reduce those emissions. Yep. It's literally their their islands are at stake here. Their livelihoods, their family mm. and community. Yeah. Um, so we've got in a separate matter, Darren, um, which is also related to the topic we've been talking about. We've got eight Torres Strait Islander traditional owners known as the Torres Strait Eight uh, who have lodged a complaint with the United Nations Human Rights Committee in Geneva in Switzerland. And they're alleging that the Australian government has failed to uphold its human rights obligations and that its inaction has led to violations of their rights to their culture, life and family. So tell us a little bit about the, uh, the Torres Strait 8. Yeah, sure. So, so what we know is that the advancing sea levels, they're already threatening homes as well as damaging burial grounds, um, sacred cultural sites and Many Torres Strait Islander people are worried their islands could disappear in their own lifetime. That's right. Without urgent action, and that concern is backed up by the latest climate science. So, mm. you know, this the complaint was the first climate change litigation brought against the Australian government based on human rights, mm. and the first legal action worldwide brought by inhabitants of low-lying islands against a nation-state. But unfortunately, the Australian government is attempt, attempting to get the UN to dismiss it. Of course, they complain. They are. of course they are. Yep. Um, they're denying that climate change is impacting on the human rights of those people. Yeah, look, it's just mind-boggling that, you know, we've got to the point where, you know, people from the Torres Strait um, who are so worried about their livelihoods and communities, they're suing the Australian government. And then you've got another group who are so worried about their livelihoods as well up there that they've made a massive complaint to the United Nations. So... You know, this is this is shaming on the international stage, really, isn't it? It certainly is. And uh, look, if if this coalition government, you know, doesn't doesn't listen to what's said over there in uh, Glasgow and and what's being said by these activists, and 
well, let's not call them activists. They're, they're people fighting for their fighting for their lifestyle, which has been enjoyed for generations. And just on lifestyle, so recently, I know the Guardian newspaper, they reported on a new seawall which is being built up in the northern beaches of Sydney. Now, this was after a massive storm came through. I think that might have been about 2016. Okay. And you might remember the images in the mainstream papers of the mansions sitting on mm. on uh, on the beach there, on the beachfront. They've all got their big, beautiful swimming pools overlooking the horizon and the beautiful um, ocean there. Um, and then you've got after the king tide comes through, you've got pools, swimming pools, which were teetering on the edge of country there and falling pretty much into the ocean. And, you know, it didn't take long before, you know, we've got uh, millions and millions of dollars being spent on a retaining wall to keep these mansions and the properties of rich people in the northern beaches of Sydney, their homes are protected now. You know, there's this ugly, ugly beach. Well, if you have a look at it, it's seven metres high. I've seen the pictures. Seven metres high and a, a couple of hundred metres long. It's a huge wall. Why is this not happening up in the Torres Strait? Uh, it's, it's just people, the government, out of sight, out of mind. That's, that's what I'm thinking. You know, it's... Um, the people living in those rich suburbs, they're the ones who have got the year of government. That's why they're rich, mm. let's face it. Um, for the Islander people, I mean, they have been, they have been sort of calling out to the government for, as we, as we discussed for years and years, but there hasn't been any, any real effort to address those concerns. Yep. Now you think in a country like Australia, which is, um, you know, we're able to we're able to produce anything in this country. Surely we can produce a decent seawall, which might be able to help alleviate this problem. But that's actually just remedying a, uh, a symptom. That's right. We really have to go to the root cause of those problems if, if those islands are, are going to continue into the future. And I suppose that'd be throwing back to that 2015 a Dutch agreement where the coal stations are actually being shut down to reduce the, uh, the level of carbon being released into the atmosphere, which is then, I suppose, helping to alleviate those symptoms of, of rising sea, sea yep. levels. And look, you know, we're a country which has boundless resources when it comes to sun and wind and renewables. Now, why, aren't, why isn't the focus more on that That's rather right. than, uh, than trying to um, get the last the last bucket of coal out of an industry or the last bit of gas just because it's going to be dollars in the pocket of some rich person down in the North Shore. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's absolutely right. Well, let's hope we see some changes from the uh, COP26 over in Glasgow at the moment. Uh, Darren, thanks for giving us a bit of a wrap up of the situation happening up there for mob on the Torres Strait. Um, we'll catch you next time you're in the Black Room. Pleasure, Nick. Thanks a lot for giving us the opportunity to have a chat. The Korean Mail. Knowledge. Culture. Country. Connection. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Now I have Bunjalung and South Sea Islander woman, Amelia Telford, with me on the line. 
Amelia is the National Director at the SEED Indigenous Youth Climate Network. Now, SEED is Australia's first Indigenous Youth Climate Network, and their work involves building a movement of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people for climate justice with the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. And their vision is for a just and sustainable future with strong cultures and communities powered by renewable energy. Amelia is passionate about supporting a national grassroots network of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people to protect land, culture and communities from the impacts of climate change and fossil fuel extraction and to be part of creating a positive change for our people. Amelia was awarded National NAIDOC Youth of the Year in 2014. She's also been awarded Bob Brown's Young Environmentalist for the Year in 2015 and the Australian Geographic Young Conservationist of the Year in 2015 for her commitment to building a more just and sustainable future for all young people. Amelia, thanks so much for joining me on the Black Room News podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Nick. Great to be here. Now, Amelia, I've just been yarning with our senior journalist, Darren Coyne, about the COP26 summit in Glasgow and two major issues uh, that we've reported on in this edition, one being a group of Torres Strait Island traditional owners who are suing the Australian government over their inaction in reducing carbon emissions, and the other issue being a complaint made to the United Nations by a different group of Torres Strait Islander uh, traditional owners on a similar issue. So, look, Amelia, in your opinion, do you think the Australian government are doing enough to tackle the climate problems people on the Torres Strait are experiencing? No, there's no way that our government is doing enough. You know, right now um, and this week, what we saw with Scott Morrison in Glasgow, um, you know, he was together with other world leaders who have been twiddling their thumbs for far too long um, and and absolutely just passing around the responsibility, you know, in terms of, you know, it's a cop-out. They're not willing to take responsibility for their actions and the consequences of decisions that they've made. Mm. And the reality is, is that Australia is one of the largest exporters of fossil fuels you know, coal, oil and gas in the world. And whilst they might claim that we don't have a huge role to play, we absolutely do. You know, that's our country that's getting dug up and destroyed. And when that's burnt, you know, it's fueling the climate crisis that our communities are seeing the impacts of. Um, And yet we have a huge capacity to be a global leader on this issue, you know, where we've got an abundance of sun, an abundance of wind. And, you know, as as our mob, we know we've looked after our land sustainably for tens of thousands of years. And our knowledge, you know, if it was actually valued and, and respected, we could play a huge role, you know, as, as a global leader. But Australia are absolutely using distraction as a tactic. Um, and and no one's, you know, no one's buying it. I think the rest of the world are, are pretty angry at, at, at the Australian government and so too are the Australian people. Because we, uh, Darren Coyne and I spoke earlier in the podcast about Scott Morrison taking in that lump of coal to federal parliament and saying, you know, you needn't be afraid of this. And, you know, Darren and I spoke that, well, actually Torres Strait Islander people are very afraid of this because this is the reason why they're experiencing such a climate crisis up there. Absolutely. And, you know, I think our politicians think that it's a joke. Like they actually think that it's funny that they can take a lump of coal into into Parliament, or they can joke about sea level rise. You know, it was not that long ago that um, Tony Abbott and oh, I can't remember who else it was, just another white guy, <laughs> um, you know, politician who um, 
were joking about sea level rise and running on island time when they were, you know, at a Pacific island um, climate gathering. And it's just awful, you know, whether it's treating this like a game um, or whether it's treating it like a joke, like these, it's actually people's lives and livelihoods and cultures that are on the line. Um, and, and I think that's a frustrating thing, right, is that our communities have done the least to cause these issues and yet we're facing the most severe consequences and we've benefited the least, you know. That, that's what it comes back to is the power imbalance and who's benefiting from all of this. And it's the, the government and their mates in the fossil fuel industry who are donating to keep them in power. Um, but, you know, I think what, what we know, what we've always done is, is come together as our communities and keep building our power because we have to give them no choice but to, you know, demand um, de- demand action and demand action now. It's interesting that you mentioned that clip. The other uh, Black Room News podcast producer and I were watching that clip yesterday and we won't name mm. that fella who made that comment who didn't know that his microphone had actually been mm. left on um, in mm. which we were then able to see. I remember who it was now. <laughs> yes. And I look, I don't think that person needs to be named on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, if people who are listening would like to research that themselves, I mean, we've given a pretty good description as to uh, what you need to search for there. Um, now, look, talking about the, the Glasgow Summit, Amelia, you've got your campaign director, a Kalkalag woman, Tashiko King, is in Glasgow at the moment. You guys for Seedmob have raised more than $20,000 to send Tashiko over there. Massive congratulations to you guys in raising that money so quick. Um, mm. Can you let our listeners know, Amelia, what is Tashiko getting up to over at Glasgow? Yeah, so, I mean, it was so last minute that we got news that there was a spare badge from the Australian Climate Action Network um, delegation to be able to go over. And so within the matter of about five days, we had to, you know, build a plan for whether or not it was possible for Tish to go, raise the money and then book the flights and make it all happen. Um, so it was, you know, we didn't plan for this Um you know, a few months ago, it didn't even seem possible that people could travel. And, you know, I think I'd I'd like to just point out that, you know, Indigenous people globally actually called on world leaders um, and, and in particular the UK government to not go ahead with this conference because of the lack of accessibility for those communities with the most at stake who need to be able to be in the rooms, you know, um, and be a part of, be have a seat at the table, but the lack of accessibility for them to be at this um, because of, you know, limited ac- access to vaccinations and, and limited ability to be able to travel for vulnerable communities. But, you know, they went ahead with it anyway. And unfortunately, um, unfortunately, it has been quite inaccessible. Like I've been talking to Tish every day um, and she was saying that, you know, that she's barely been able to even get into any of the sessions because there's limits on numbers, which is understandable. But, you know, they tried to say that this would be the most accessible one yet because they'd provide, you know, um, access to, to different sessions online. But even that has changed last minute. And mm. so a lot is happening behind closed doors. And, you know, that's that's not news to us. Like that's how it's been for so long. That's part of what we're advocating mm. is that, you know, our people globally, Indigenous people need a seat at the table. And I think, um, you know, one of the big reasons why why Tish was going was to be a voice that could hold our government accountable, um, but also to connect with with First Nations people globally who are rising up, you know, in the face of the climate crisis that, you know, was caused and is continuing to be filled by not only 
fossil fuels, but the colonial capitalist systems that we're a part of. And so to connect and strategize and, and build relationships with other Indigenous people has been a huge highlight um, for, for Tish. And, and I think we'll, you know, whatever comes out of this global gathering, we know that's not the end. Um, it's really, there's so much more beyond this. And, and that's where we, we're going to need to see action being implemented. Um, but we know that that leadership is, is coming from communities. And so we're just excited to be able to have those connections to, to other mob globally to be able to build on. Um, and, you know, for, for listeners um, out there, keep an eye out. We want to put on a webinar um, where we can bring in and, um, you know, uh, elevate the, those mob from all over the place and, and tell the stories and highlight the parallels between what we're facing here and what mob are facing in other places too. For sure. And our senior journalist, Darren Quinn, as I mentioned, interviewed uh, Tish last week um, just before she went over to Glasgow. So it'd be great. Uh, we'll probably try and catch up with Tish when she gets back and, and see how everything went over there. I think it's it's embarrassing the way uh, the Prime Minister has conducted himself over there. Uh, it's embarrassing now to Australia, now that we've got these text messages leaked um, between uh, world leaders. But I think the biggest shame on Australia being in Glasgow was when I saw pictures of our little stall um, at the summit, which has been branded in various mining and gas company logos. Now, what's with that? Yeah, um, look, I mean, it's not surprising is what we've been saying for so long, which is that our government is absolutely in bed with the fossil fuel industry, whether that be Santos, Empire Energy, you know, Origin Energy, Rio Tinto, whoever. Um, the it's, it's these companies that um, our government are listening, listening to rather mm. than listening to everyday people who want them to be taking action. And so, you know, Santos's branding is plastered all over the Australian stall at the, at the pavilion, which is where all the countries sort of show off, you know, what they're doing and how they're doing it. And I think it's just absolutely disgusting because, you know, Santos have stakes. Um, and when I say stakes, I mean, you know, projects, proposals, mm. um, you know, mining, mining projects, fracking, coal seam gas on country in central western New South Wales, on, you know, Gomorrah, Gomorrah, um, country also in the Northern Territory, um, you know, and and right across the nation, and um, and and yet our government, you know, are acting as if um, you know they're taking real action, but it's fraudulent. Like in reality, what they're doing is continuing to um, you know burn fossil fuels and dig up fossil fuels to make profit. Um, and they know full well that, you know, the the solutions that they're proposing are false solutions. They're not going to get us to where we need to be. And we can't do just a little bit of good over here to make up for all the bad. The reality is, is that we need to keep all fossil fuels in the ground and transition to, to not only renewable energy, but transition to Indigenous ways of doing and knowing and being, because that's what allowed our mob to live sustainably for tens of thousands of years. Um, and, yeah, you know, what they're proposing is just... Yeah, it's, it's it's not going to work. Well, I'm glad I wasn't the only one then that saw that imagery of the Australian stall plastered in mining and gas company logos. Um, what a joke. Look, con <laughs> considering that, um, Amelia, do you think that we're going to see any genuine change being implemented in relation to reducing our carbon emissions after the summit wraps up? 
Well, I think if anything, you know, this frustration, it can be used as a fuel for communities and not just our mob, but, you know, everyday Australians who, you know, the polling shows that the majority of people want stronger action on climate change and we want our government to be investing in our future, not in, you know, the future of fracking and fossil fuels. And so I think that, um, you know, whilst the, the government's plan is, definitely not going to get us to where we need to be. I think, um, you know, there's more and more people rallying um, to to hold them accountable to real action. And I think that will be what it takes to reduce our emissions and to get us where we need to be. But really their plan is, you know, covered in in, in a term that we want to sort of, I guess, start talking a bit more about, um, you know, it's a bit of a buzzword over at COP, um, which is false solutions. Mm. And so, you know, what that means is that these, you know, supposed um, uh, methods of, of capturing carbon from the atmosphere, like carbon capture and storage or nature-based solutions, um, like the what it is, is it's saying we'll continue to burn fossil fuels, but we'll, we'll, we'll take some of it out of the atmosphere, you know, we'll make up for it. Mm. Um, and I don't think you have to be a rocket scientist to understand that um, no amount of carbon capture and storage is actually going to help. And when push comes to shove, that's not what our mob are, you know, it, it's not just about stopping um, or making up for the emissions. It's about our country. It's about us being able to protect our land and water. It's about stopping, you know, stopping the destruction of our lands and waters and protecting it for future generations. So I think, you know, their plan is definitely not going to reduce emissions in line with the science or in line with what First Nations people have been calling for ever since colonisation. Absolutely. And I think with the crisis happening up on the Torres Strait Islands, I think what most mob up there would be calling out for is is funding. We need, you know, we need to send funding up there to make sure that some of these issues are alleviated, you know, building retaining walls, getting dredges up there to help out the mob. That's it. Absolutely. And our communities, you know, evidence shows that when we are empowered to lead and when we have the resources that we need and funding that we need to do so, we get the best results and not just for us, but for everyone. Um, And I think that, yeah, you know, when when it comes to the Torres Strait, like, it's been over 20 years now that communities and you know across the islands have been calling for 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 um, you know investment in in more seawalls and other preventative measures to be able to adapt but also calling for the you know the halting of the the root causes of what's fueling this crisis in terms of stopping you know digging up fossil fuels um, and 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 they just continue to be ignored and silenced and so I think you know seeing um, seeing you know the the rise of of impacted communities on the front lines you know standing up and telling you know speaking truth to power that's what we need to see more of. Absolutely. I mean, uh, in our uh, article in this edition, um, which features Toshiko before she's gone to Glasgow, she's given some harrowing uh, details of what life is like back on her island up in the Torres Strait. And, you know, it's things like um, seeing their burial grounds now become um, exposed, you know, um, things like uh, remains now protruding through the sand because it's been washed away and, uh, you know, water's inundating uh, the community, which means the salt is getting into the groundwater, which are, you know, rendering their crops to be kind of useless. And we've got um, two leaders up there, Paul Kabai and Pabai Pabai, uh, who are claimants in the group of Torres Strait Islander traditional owners who are suing the Australian government. Now, Amelia, their fear is that they're going to become Australia's first 
climate refugees. Now, this is a huge issue for the boys. Um, this is their connection uh, to their life and to their cultures. And uh, one of the fellas has said in the article in this edition, you know, our ancestors have lived on these islands for more than 65,000 years. But the government's failure to prevent the climate crisis means our islands could be flooded. Becoming climate refugees means losing everything, our homes, our culture, our stories, our identity. And if you take that away and you take away our homelands, we don't know who we are. Do you think that we need to be taking the idea of climate refugees more seriously? Yeah, look, I think, you know, what what we have been hearing from communities over the last few years, you know, across mainland, but also across, you know, the islands, is that, you know, pe people are really worried that climate change, both in terms of the impacts and the causes, you know, the extractive mining industries that are fueling this, mm. um, are, are going to, and in some cases have already, and, you know, and as we look to the future, it's going to force our mob off country um, yet again. You know, the, the displacement of country that we've seen since colonisation happening yet again. And 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 it's devastating, you know, as, as those quotes say, like it's our ancestors have been in these places for, for generations. Um, and, you know, our, we have blood connection to these places. We know these places. They're a part of who we are. It's our identity. Um, it's a huge issue and it needs to be taken seriously. Um, and 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 yet, you know, right now our government is turning a blind eye. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, this is something that we're going to have to be talking about more because the reality is, unfortunately, is that we are locked in right now to, you know, to, to, to a level of, of global warming and climate change that we aren't able to, to turn back. You know, we've been facing this for quite some time now. Um, everyone's seeing it. You know, you can't deny that we're living in a time of, of, of the climate crisis, mm. but we can still turn it around and avoid the worst impacts, you know, like... We need to limit warming to less than 1.5 degrees, um, you know, two, two degrees at, at most, um, but continuing to invest in, in, you know, in the fossil fuel industry as our government is doing right now would be getting us on track for, for three, four, five, six degrees of warming, which science says is, is unlivable, you know, like it, I, 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 I try to avoid even thinking about that because it's so scary. So, you know, the focus that we can have is on, on, on this decade right now that we're in. Um, and supporting those who have the most at stake, like, you know, the mob um, across islands in the Torres Strait, because it's communities who've done, um, you know, who are facing the most severe consequences, who have the most at stake, who need to be empowered to be leading solutions and be a part of building what the future looks like. Well, I just think it's great. We've got leaders like Paul and Pabe up there in the Torres Strait Islands doing good things for their community. They're the ones standing up saying we're in crisis here. The government needs to listen to us. We don't want to become another stolen generations because if you take us away from, uh, take them away from their land, you know, Paul and Pablo are worried they'll become nobodies. So I'm interested to see where this class action goes. Uh, so hopefully we see the boys get some success from their class action in suing the federal government. Hey, Amelia Telford, thanks so much for coming in to give your expertise in the black room today. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. It's been such a pleasure. Hope we can yarn again soon. Now, if you would like to help out the Seed Indigenous Youth Climate Network, you can make a donation to their organisation via their website and you can find their website details in our show description. Since 1991, the Koori Mail has been the voice of Indigenous Australia. 
as Australia's only national fortnightly publication, we are excited to celebrate our 30th birthday this year. For all the latest news and views, subscribe at currymail.com. Scott Black deaths in custody. Almost 30 years and over 474 deaths since the Royal Commission. No police officer or authority has been convicted for any black deaths in custody. Our organisation, Stop Black Deaths in Custody Australia, provide guidance, support and assistance. We are a not-for-profit organisation that campaigns and supports our First Nation families who are grieving the loss of their loved ones in their fight for justice. Please go to our website where you'll find our fundraising t-shirts along with the stories of those loved ones we have lost. Visit stopblackdeathsincustodyaustralia.com.au Welcome back to The Black Room. I've got with me Darren Moncrief, our Deadly Sports Editor. Darren, welcome to The Black Room. Happy to be here. Awesome. Now, Darren, we've been speaking a lot in this podcast about the massive issue which affects all of us, what we know is a huge climate problem across the world. And in your co- in your column um, in this edition, um, you speak about what it might be like for sport in the future if we don't tackle these issues now. And I particularly liked uh, your comment here where you said we're making plans about making plans about making plans about <laughs> making plans. When's it actually going to get to the stage where we're putting this plan into action? We're doing things which are going to help to alleviate the issue, especially for our mates up there uh, in the Torres Strait. Yeah, exactly. Um, sport really is at the mercy of um, policymakers. Like, sport doesn't have a seat at the table. S- sport like encompasses a lot of our a lot of our way of life in this country, but it doesn't have a seat at the policy table yet. If things were to become dire for the weather, then sport's going to be the last thing we're going to be worrying about. Yeah. Even now, the summer games, so you've got your crickets, your NBL, uh, your preseason games, yep. they're all, they, they have a heat policy already. And this was not in place, you know, 25 years ago. Mm. I think in the 2000s, the mid maybe, to, uh, 2005 maybe onwards, the AFL and I think the other, some other sports followed suit, that those summer pre-season games and the summer sports like your ALEs, they had a heat policy mm. where games would be played at night, right? Yes, yep. But like you said, if we're just um, announcing, making an announcement about an announcement for plans we're planning on... <laughs> What change is really taking effect? Exactly. You yeah. Know? And, and our beloved sports that we love so much and that prime ministers use, you know, for political gain. Um, and, and, um, it's going to be, it's going to be the last thing we're going to be worried about. Our players won't be able to get on the field. Um, well, there were even yeah. some instances this year with the tennis where it got so hot that they, they'd stopped the game midway through. Yeah. And that was too hot for the players. It's going to, it's going to, um, become a thing. You know, soon, we're a few years from that year, but right now, if we don't make decisions, the decisions we do do or do not make now, today, are going to impact in a few years' time for sure. And I think, Darren, a lot of people see that one and a half degree target we're trying to get, trying to bring things down, Mm. not let them exceed the one and a half, and certainly not let it exceed between two and five degrees by the year 2050. I mean, we're getting so close to that stage anyway. Shouldn't we have enacted these plans 20 years ago when we knew this was going to happen? Absolutely. And that's like, it comes back. And 
sport can only react to what you know what's out there and and like I said they bought in a heat policy where they're going okay it's too hot we're going to play this game two hours later and mm. the sun goes down a bit so so flash forward 40 years into the future and there's a chance that we don't make uh, these targets so you're thinking you know people already playing sport on a 30 degree day mm. on average you know if that's then rising by two or three degrees that's that's a really hot environment to be playing sport yeah i mean our friends in the tropics like to you know say yeah we play in the summer i've played in the summer comp up in darwin and it's great but you just add a few more degrees and you're like Ugh. sweating it out <laughs> you're gonna see a lot of um people not taking up sport mm. maybe you know like I was just listening to a radio just then, if um, a lot of junior people stop playing a particular sport that can, has a cascading effect, you know, in the future there's a whole base that's not taking up a sport, yep. then that sport can't regenerate itself. So we could see something like this happening across the board in sport. Absolutely. So where do you, th where do you see things happening? What do you think is going to help us, you know, get on top of these targets to, to reduce the impact of the carbon in our environment? Well, it's got to start from the top. We can only, we can only recycle so much. We can only, you know, put our cartons in the recycling bin so much. Who is making those plastics? Who's n not deciding to, um, step away from, um, fossil fuels? You know, we need a whole lot of approach to it. Well, Darren, thank you for coming in to give your thoughts on the situation at the moment. Um, and we'll see you next time in the Black Room. No worries. Boogle Bear, thank you again for listening to the Black Room News podcast. I'm Nick Payton, and the latest edition of the Mail newspaper is on sale now. You can find a list of news agents and how to set up a digital subscription at www.kurimail.com. See you in a fortnight. Make sure you hit subscribe on your screen to stay up to date with the latest Black Room podcast. You can find links to our socials and other Kurimao podcasts in the show description.